Welcome to Civilly Speaking with host Sean Harris. Each month, Civilly Speaking brings you interviews on practical and timely legal issues on the local and national level. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hello, I'm your host, Sean Harris. This is episode 42 of Civilly Speaking, brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Today is January 10th, 2019, and I'm here with our guest, Rob Miller. Rob is an attorney here in Columbus. Thanks very much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking. Thank you for having me. In our business, whether it's personal injury, medical malpractice, workers' comp, etc., it is undeniably a human endeavor. And we're dealing with clients who have been uh, had their lives altered in, in dramatic ways. Often, as you know, clients come to lawyers with expectations, and sometimes those expectations, I say facetiously, are not reasonable. Have you noticed this? How do you deal with this? Talk to us about managing client expectations. Sure, and I think that's an important topic, and I think client expectations seem in my practice to be different depending on the, the three main areas of practice and depending on where they fit into that. And the three main areas that I deal with would be your, your general personal injury case, which is often an automobile crash or something of that nature, a premises liability case, something like that, a product liability claim, which is a considerably different animal and often involves more catastrophic type injuries. And then the third being a medical malpractice. And all three of them, I think, have roadblocks to them in terms of, of the, the clients meeting their expectations in a, in a garden variety PI case. And this is also true, I suppose, of medical malpractice and product liability, so it's, it's applicable across the board. But damages caps have had a profound impact on not just our, our ceiling in terms of recovery, but our bargaining position. And what has to happen at the outset is clients have to be aware that this law exists because they often almost universally don't know about it. Nobody has heard of it. All right. And so what I like to do from the outset is at least give them some, some broad prints as to what we're dealing with in terms of our legal burden and what might be a ceiling for us. Even, you know, they, I think they all kind of believe that their case has a value higher than, than what a jury might think. So I think that at the outset, it's important to set a, an absolute legal ceiling. Let them be aware of that. Because if the case is ever going to resolve, which is always something you want to try to explore, they're never going to pay the ceiling. It's always going to be something less than that. And that's usually eye-opening. And if you start with that, I think that it, it prompts further discussion on all kinds of different things. And you can use that to parlay into, well, that's not our only challenge. One of the things that happened to me, probably within the last week, we had a, uh, a mediator's proposal on the table of a, a very significant motorcycle accident case. And it wasn't a products case. This was just a, a garden variety personal injury case. But we had a rental car, so we had a large policy, and we had significant orthopedic injuries. When we were evaluating whether or not to accept the mediator's proposal, which, of course, was causing my client to stretch from his expectation, and what we were told by our mediator was causing the insurance company, of course, to stretch from their expectation, Lots of questions started popping in. One of the questions was whether caps would apply or not. The, the inquiry was about whether or not he had a substantial permanent deformity. In his case, it was a situation where his, his injury was more lower extremity. So he had some scarring, but he had internal hardware. It's very difficult to know exactly how a court's going to cut on that, but that's going to make a large difference in terms of what our ceiling would be. So that was a variable that was very difficult to, to, to explain, to sit down and work through, and to handicap. And there's not a whole lot of 
jury verdict data you can look at that's going to tell you one way or another whether a jury is going to find his injury to be permanent and substantial deformity. So we had that issue, but, but what was most eye-opening to him was that conversation prompted other conversations like, well, what is a jury, how do their minds work, and aren't they going to be influenced by the fact that we're against an insurance company? Ha-ha! Jury will understand my case, right? <laughs> right. They, he didn't realize that a jury doesn't get to hear about insurance and what the coverage is. That was eye-opening. That's something I had never initiated with him and caused me to think, well, in my higher value cases where there is insurance coverage and we have those conversations early on, I need to start making sure that everybody knows that the jury doesn't get to hear that, that it's still going to be a common person at the table across from them that the jury is going to think is footing the bill for this, or unless you have a, a sophisticated juror that knows that there's probably insurance coverage for that. So I think we're always kind of trying to evolve our conversations with jury expectations and always trying to think of, well, what are all the variables that I need to bring up? The sooner you bring it up, I think, the, the better you're, you're, you're going to build your level of trust and be able to work with that person towards a, a fair resolution based on all the variables down the road. I think that's an excellent point as far as the timing of when to have these conversations. I remember being a younger lawyer and thinking, you know, stage one, sign up the client. Stage two, talk about the merits. I think what you're advocating is from the initial client meeting, discussing what their expectations are and what the legal realities of their case in Ohio is today. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. When I, when I first started, I, I was of the mindset that if you, you can't hit them with everything at once, it's too overwhelming. But as I've grown in the practice, I've, I've learned that I've never had a client who takes the time to come see me who's trying to hurry out the door. I've never had a client upset that I call them to talk about their case. So they're there, they're captive, they are completely new to this, and it's usually the, the lawyer who's in the rush to, to, to get out of there. And, and, and our mindset, I think, needs to shift a little bit that if, if you're going to bring somebody in, be prepared to, to sit down with them for quite a while and, and uh, don't dole it out slowly over time. Go ahead and hit them all at once and then revisit certain things over time. And I think that goes a long way towards, towards building a rapport towards avoiding surprises that occur at depositions, which is another area where you learn, you know, at least I, I've been guilty of learning more about my client at their deposition than, than at the initial intake. And, and that's something that you really shouldn't, shouldn't have occur to you. So where I've gone with it in, in any of the three areas of my cases are really, if they're going to come in, we're going to have a long talk and, and we're going to start, you know, at, at, at the beginning of the facts and end it. This is, this is, if it goes all the way to the end of the day, this is what we're looking at. And yeah, it takes a little bit of time, but it, it's, I think it pays off in the end. And, and you, again, you make a good point that by covering it at the, as early as the initial client meeting, when you say it again and say it again and say it in throughout the course of the case, they're not hearing it for the first time, right? They've heard it from you. By the time they get to mediation, they're now hearing the same thing from the mediator, building up your credibility as counsel. That's right. And, I, and the, the, the cue I get when I think I've done my job the right way is sometimes sentences begin with, and I know you've said this, or I've heard this, or you, you, know, you mentioned this. And, and so that means, hey, that's good. That means it's, it, it's registering and they're, and they're starting to get, and then they still push back on you and, and find about it. But my case is different, or but isn't this different, or something to that effect. You know, on the same vein, when you're talking about, for instance, a medical malpractice case, we have affidavits of merit requirements. We have expert requirements. We have incredible expense that they need to hear about right away. They need to hear that as important and, and as horrific as their incident may be, 
our hurdle is different in terms of what can we prove and, and, and what can we find by way of an expert in that field, what can we find that's going to help carry the water here to say that there's been this deviation from the standard of care. And obviously, you know, I can't tell you how many people call and think that, well, they have, there's insurance that covers these, these injuries, not understanding the difference between malpractice and, and an unfortunate outcome that's a risk and complication. So I would say a good 25% think that if you've had that bad outcome, well, that's, that's why we have insurance to, to cover me for this. And I wish that were the case, but that's, that's not the case. You know, and then the other one in, in the medical malpractice world, that's, I think, the conversation that has to be had initially, even if you're going to take the case and it's a borderline damages case in terms of whether it makes economic sense to, to pursue the case, I think that conversation has to be had because there's a, there's a wide discrepancy in terms of the cost of experts. And sometimes you, you, you don't know if this is a $7,000 retainer case or if this is somebody who's going to look at it for $250 an hour. That can make a big difference if you have a a medical malpractice case that's capped, you know, and, and you're not sure if it's going to ever make economic sense. How many experts are you going to need? Sometimes you don't know those answers until you've actually looked at the records. So you have to leave that, that meeting saying, I will sign you up. I will look at these records. I can't promise you that this is going to make financial sense. We're just going to have to figure out what we, what, we, what we see when we get there. I certainly found out that the hard way, too. I think that clients appreciate that kind of honesty up front. Certainly, if you frame it correctly, right? If you tell the client, I'm not going to take your case because it's not big enough, eh, that doesn't sound so good. But if you frame it as, you're going to end up worse off for hiring a lawyer. By the time we go through all the time and expense and spend whatever it is on experts, et cetera, discovery, you're going to have less money than when you went into it. I want to do that to you. It's not, it doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do me any good. We're trying to get a successful result for you under the circumstances. Yeah, and, and the, the nightmare scenario, which happens all too often, I think, for all of us because we have clients that are emotional about it, and they don't like hearing that. All of a sudden, you can get into a contentious situation where it's not uncommon for them to become very upset and start blaming you and yelling at you and things like that. And one of the things I have recently started doing that, that has been very effective is immediately explain the business side of it, that we work on a contingency and we fund our, all of our own cases, and that this is one where our partnership would, would never agree to fund it because it's too high risk for us. But if you wish, you can fund, fund it and it would be a, a retainer of $5,000 to allow us to do the work up or whatever the case may be. And you can pay for it to be reviewed. And then we'll work on an hourly fee of whatever that might be. And we'd be happy to do that if that's your, your, uh, your preference. But I wouldn't recommend that because I think that at the end of the day, it's probably not going to benefit you financially for the reasons that, that I've already stated. Then it suddenly starts to focus in on them like, ooh, it is, it is hard to do this. That's when it's not you know, house money anymore, they start to understand it from your perspective. Yeah, and, and talk about things that clients always, uh, a lot of times don't understand, not talking about insurance, those kinds of issues, but the, the difference between legal fees and case expenses, right? Oh, you told me it was a percentage and that's it. Well, no, we talked about that, but we can go over it again. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's why your, your fee agreement obviously has to, has to be very clear about that because that is a common one. People have a misunderstanding about that all the time, and I make it a practice to actually point that out, even though two, three years down the road it's forgotten. You can, you can show it. You can even highlight it at times uh, if, if you have somebody that you're concerned about whether they're retaining the information. And then you make a copy of that in color and you hand them you know, their, their, their copy and your copy and their initials are all on it. And that, that can help with that because, yes, that is, a, that is a big deal, especially in the high 
expense cases where, wow, this costs $70,000 to pursue. Yes, it did. I was thinking about as far as you know, initial client meetings and, and intake. I, I've had situation. You talked about you know some of the practice pointers. I've I've had conversations with new clients where I ask them, "Do you have goals or expectations for this case?" If I'm concerned that they may be out of line for what we can reasonably accomplish, and I try whatever they say, I try and write down verbatim. Nine times out of ten, they say, "I just want my bills paid," whatever it is. And I don't want this to happen to somebody else. Right, and I, that's right, <laughs> and it's the principle. And and the way I use that, how that's beneficial is by inevitably when you show them the initial offer and they say, "Well, that's a slap in the face. That's outrageous. Let's let's file suit right away." I said, "Well, when, you know, when we talked initially, you only wanted your bills paid. Apparently, that goal has changed now, and so let's have that conversation. So it serves as kind of a you know a recentering, but also a, a jump off point to talk about." Okay, let's continue in this professional relationship. Talk about how do we get the best result under the circumstances. I love that idea. I yeah. think that's a great idea, and I'll start doing that. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, maybe this podcast is worth something to somebody now. All right. <laughs> yep. Rob, you mentioned that you uh, handle a fair amount of products liability cases. What percentage of your clients in, poten- in potential uh, product liability cases know about a statute of repose in Ohio? <laughs> right. So the statute of repose has come up, I would say, in three critical places for me. None of my clients, of course, know about it. What? It it exists in medical malpractice as well. There's a four-year statute of repose, and that one comes up fairly frequently. Three times it happened to me in a a product liability setting. The first was a wrongful death situation where a gentleman was repairing a machine in a factory setting, and the machine had sophisticated software in it and there was some sort of hiccup that he could only repair by accessing a panel inside of the machine. And when he, even though the machine was locked out and tagged out, it was energized, the way the software was set up was a, was a, a defect. And so when he reset the machine just as the manual said to do, it cycled and caused a traumatic brain injury for him that he, he was not able to survive. The machine was older than than 10 years, which is the Ohio statute of repose. I remember when that testimony was taken, and I went and I watched that, and and the the naivety of people was shocking to me, that they really thought that it's simply not practical that there would be machinery out there or products out there that are 10 years old, and that it would be completely unfair to hold a manufacturer to a standard like that. But the, the other one that came up, so that's number one, that's an error code that had never been you know, a sophisticated machine like this has potentially millions of them. This is an error that had never occurred before in 10 years of use. Classic example. Second one, automobile seatbelts. How many people are driving around out there in cars that are 10 years or older? A lot that have never been in an accident or that have never been in an accident with, for instance, somebody sitting and belted in the right rear where we have a defective seatbelt, for instance. So in that particular case, there's no ability for the consumer to know that they're riding around, their children are riding around a car with a defect in it. The third one was, of course, both of our firms have been involved in the Ohio State Fair case, where we have carnival rides or fair rides out there that are older than 10 years old, putting our children on it. Our community is putting their children on it. Ohio law says that in these three instances, there's nothing we can do. Our hands are completely tied. It's an airtight statute. It's always shocking. It's always shocking to clients when you say, yeah, you didn't know about that. They don't know what our General Assembly is doing. They never do. And it's a frustration to all of us every election year we go through. And I know it's not high on people's radar of what's happening with respect to 
people's access to the courts because it's only important to them when it happens to them. If it doesn't happen to them, then everything's, everything's uh, ship shape and there's other issues that, that are more pressing, and I understand that. I think one of our greatest challenges is trying to figure out a way to continue to try to message this, but it's, it's really trying to message the people that are, are just not going to be capable of receiving it because they don't have that human experience. Yeah, I always thought with statute of repose on products, the least they could do is require a warning, right, to place a sign, whether in front of the amusement park ride or on the seatbelt, that say, this was manufactured on, and sold on this date, and, and just so you know, just you know, fair warning, after this date, you, there no, it doesn't matter, you can't bring any claims. That would be the fair thing to do. Maybe put it on the sign, welcome to Ohio. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> statute of repose in effect. <laughs> right. Well, in the same, we, we see that a lot, too, with Court, uh, w- when you have medical malpractice claims in, in, at Ohio State, hey, by the way, you don't, your, your doctors are all immune. This is a claim against the state of Ohio with vast limitations on what can be done for you. And they don't know that. That's not disclosed to them. And, and it, you know, I think that there is a, a fair amount of people. The world of, of malpractice, of med mal, is much more on people's radar than, than products. And I think people would actually elect not to go to Ohio State if they had some idea that there's greater license to malpractice them. And I understand the wisdom behind it because you're teaching. It's a teaching hospital and things like that. But we sure don't do a good job of disclosing it to the patient so they can make an informed decision about it. And, and speaking of Ohio State, even that legal issue of immunity here, I mean, our idea or our topic today on talking about managing client expectations, they don't understand that. No. They don't know it. And even if they know it, they don't understand, why, wait a minute, they were, they're at fault. They caused this injury. And why aren't they responsible? Deeply offended by that notion. They are. And that's just, that's not what our, what our country's ideals are, are founded upon. And nobody gets a free pass. Nobody gets to run red lights with, you know, impunity like that. And so, yeah, it runs completely afoul. And again, that goes back to the old, uh, well, that doesn't apply to me. Why should it apply to you? And it shouldn't. <laughs> we all agree with that. It shouldn't. But that, that's why it offends the, the very nature of, of American citizens. Rob, thanks very much for being here today. And Thank you to all our listeners out there. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out civillyspeaking.com. Also, leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next episode of Civilly Speaking.